Some of the best photographs for me are the kind that bring rise to a question. Who is that? What's happening? Where are we? Images like that really tap into that very human quality that is deeply connected with the idea of story. Today's guest, Jared Foster, is a photographer who talks about just that idea in his new book, Storytellers. It served as the launching point for our conversation of how and when a photograph becomes more than just a pretty picture. Well, Jared, welcome to The Candid Frame. I appreciate your patience in, in uh, making this show finally happen. Oh, no problem. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Your book is called Storytellers. Tell me about growing up. When did stories start becoming an important part of your life? You're, you're from Texas, so I suspect it probably was a significant part of that, considering the history of storytelling <laughs> yeah. down there. But Yeah, all, all of the tall tales. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so tell yeah. me about that. When you started having an awareness in terms of the importance of, of stories. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a... I wouldn't say a necessarily, you know, just overtly creative house, but I was always around storytelling. Um, I was, you know, I remember being being little and and just listening to the to stories being told uh, amongst the the family members. I actually, you know, to to kind of fulfill the the uh, Texas stereotype, I did grow up on a ranch, a, a big cattle ranch in in uh, near Dallas, near Fort Worth in Dallas, and. You know, a lot of my interaction early on uh, when I was young was actually with just other family members. You know, the folks that helped run the ranch, and then, and then, uh, you know, uh, other you know parents, parents, and grandparents, and that kind of thing. And so, you know, a lot of the exchange or between people in my family were, you know, thinking about or reflecting on experiences they had in the past, and it was always those experiences were always imparted so well i thought you know as a as a little kid and 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 to this day they still are and i think there was a lot of you know passion in being able to reflect back on those experiences and so to me that was that was my first you know kind of uh, introduction to story but along the way you know i was i was one of those kids that that uh, i read a lot and and so i i you know dove into books really fast and and then I actually started started drawing at a at a very young age and i think that initiation into sort of this visual or the idea of visual storytelling through drawing actually kind of kept kept me interested in in the visual side of it. And of course, you know, just like everybody else does, or like every, especially like every teenager teenage boy, you know, I, I got into music. I, I bought a guitar and and uh, jumped into that. And of course, and through songwriting, you know, that was another way to tell story or to be a part of telling uh, somebody else's story, if you will. And so uh, I did that. I actually toured with a band for about six years uh, while I was in college, but. The whole the whole time, still, I was working in a communications capacity. When I when I got to when I got to college, I started. Uh, this is going. This is uh, even more interesting. I, I have an undergraduate and a master's degree in agricultural communications, and and um, that's kind of that that again, you know, kind of helped me uh, facilitate some of the sto- the early storytelling that I did in a professional capacity. And so that that's kind of. You know, it's always just been around, and I think you know, for most people, you know, storytelling has always been around. I think just certain people have different ways of accepting it, and taking it in, and, and being more passionate about it than others. Well, explain to me agricultural communications because <laughs> I start thinking about that, and I'm going, "What he's a corn whisperer? What what exactly?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I jokingly tell people that uh, that you know now I'm I'm able to talk to cattle and sheep, and and so you know I, I am the, the 
the animal whisperer. No, but uh, you know, agricultural communications at the time and, and now, basically, it was it was a uh, it was a degree and it was a it, it was a career path to get into agricultural journalism. And of course, growing up with that the agricultural background and growing up on the ranch, I, I thought that was just a, a a good fit. And, uh, and, and in all honesty, I was set to go to law school. I was getting ready to take the LSAT whenever I, whenever I really, uh, st- not even stumbled upon, but just kind of, you know, had, had the gumption to take a, a, a fairly, a fairly well-known, uh, photography class at Texas tech. And I had taken a couple of photography classes before that. And I was already shooting a little bit professionally, but you know, my, I think my last semester, my last full semester of my undergraduate, I, I, happened to take a class taught by Wyman Menzer who who was the state photographer of Texas and it was it was a 15 day course in the middle of the Texas hill country and it kind of transformed you know my idea of what I needed to be doing at the time so I I skipped law school but but going back to agcom basically it's just a it was a journalism and a and a PR and a marketing degree but degree with an emphasis in agriculture yeah the reason I asked you about storytelling in in your in your youth is Reading your book made me think about the importance of of storytellers, and mm-hmm. I know that in my family and in my friendships that there's always been something about really good storytellers that is is just very attractive. There's a certain force of personality, and, and it's not just about them being able to tell a joke or a good story, but they seem to sort of tap into something that draws everyone in. And, exactly, and makes yeah. and makes a social situation turn from something that could be tense and awkward into something magical. I mean, you just have one good storyteller in the mix, and mm-hmm. and it totally transforms everything. Mm-hmm. Is your passion for storytelling stem from in part from that? I, I think so, and and you know, again, kind of going back to you know, growing up and listening to story, hearing story, whether it was played out. Through, through music or if it was just told uh, uh, from the the perspective of somebody that was just there on the ranch and it was an experience that they had you know running running down a a, a cow that needed to go into the pens to, to go to the veterinarian or something like that so you know just but there has always been some sort of uh, I guess uh, the, the veracity to tell a story and and to, and to maintain attention that I've always enjoyed about conversations with with you know family and friends or certain families members and friends back home that that really kind of got me into it and I guess more interested in it and, you know I think for a lot of people too you don't realize it probably when you're really that young I mean some people probably do but you know in thinking back I probably didn't realize how how interested I was in story at the time. But now I see through through what I'm interested in telling stories about, you know, visually, I, I definitely know that I was picking up on some things that were that were being stated both verbally and, and kind of through emphasis in storytelling uh, when I was young. Yeah. In this culture, we the story is a big part of our, our lives. Mm-hmm. But to a, a great extent, it seems that we're more consumers of of stories than the creators of them. Um, I think, you know, people are watching television, they're watching movies, they're on their computers and they're sort of taking in. But as you, as you mentioned in your book, storytelling was off, was often about the cultural dynamic. It was about people getting together and sort of reconnecting and reconfirming their, their relationships to each other. And I think in other cultures, 
outside of the United States. I think it's it's still a core part of it. But I'm sometimes left to wonder whether we're losing something valuable because so much of the stories that we can consume are, are, are done increasingly in isolation. Yeah, and and I wonder too, you know, if it's really more of a question of just how storytelling is is changing and and this this may sound this may be kind of the broad answer for it, but you know, before the internet was around, I mean, obviously, you know, with the development of of television and and uh, you know, there's actually a, a lot of a lot of t- uh, material out there, research and and popular press material that that really states that you know, since TV, yes, the the community. Which includes, you know, storytelling in general. The community has, in a sense of community, has dropped because you know more people are staying in, watching TV, and and uh, you know, there's other you know other reasons why you know community has has dropped or has perceivably been in decline for many years or since kind of the 1950s. But at the same time, here in the states, at least, at the same time, I, I think you know the the internet has opened up. A, a new a new channel that's not the same as it used to be when people would gather around and maybe go go to the pub and visit and and uh, and and have that cultural exchange or, or you know visit on the sidewalk you know that that you see and 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 other cultures you know I was in Spain this past summer and man that that is a that is a street uh, a culture of street life and it was beautiful because people were always just out and about and and, and socializing in, in that form. Here in the states, I think you know we we, we have we have a tendency to, I mean you're right, kind of isolate ourselves, but also at the same time, I, we are consuming a lot of a lot of stories. But I think because of the internet and because of the capabilities that we we have with with some of this new digital technology, we're also able to to sit there and produce um, story. Uh, also, I just don't know if if uh, you know. Well, obviously the the media through which we convey story is, is arguably always in change, and I just don't know if if we're catching up with the the rate that that media is changing as well, and that mm. media being the internet, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I I I really sometimes harken back to, and I'm not I'm not that old, but it, I sometimes harken back to that feeling and the, the nostalgia related to being able to to sit to you know you know if you will sit around that fire and and, and tell stories and and uh, you know there's there's a certain power in being able to do that face to face or or through a book versus through a few clicks on the internet. Yeah. And you focus primarily on, on the visual medium and, and photography in, in this case. And really photography, good photography is about communicating. It's mm-hmm. about being able to convey a, an emotional experience, not just a visual pleasing one with, mm-hmm. with someone else. And you have a great example in there of a portrait that you took of someone and you took them out in 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 this field, mm-hmm. and you created this shot, which you thought was really visually very appealing in terms of what you were doing in terms of lighting. Mm-hmm. But then when you showed the image to someone else, they looked at it and they said they got a sense of the person that you really didn't intend. Exactly. And then, yeah. and then you had another image that more more accurately characterized who they were. And I thought that was a great way to start the book because I think photography is oftentimes rooted in what we what we intend to convey, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then but not considering how other people are going to be able to interpret it. We we think that because we created the photograph, we have we're controlling how the other person's going to experience it, and that's not exactly the case. And I thought that would be an interesting launch point for our conversation. Yeah, and. Uh, uh... 
Well, and I'll add one more to it. I think uh, you know, not only is our interpretation of, of the image that we create as photographers going to be different from those that are, that are seeing it for the first time or seeing it for the tenth time, but it's also probably going to be a little bit different, especially when you're photographing human subjects. That interpretation of the image that you just created is going to be a little bit different than the person that you just photographed is going to think it to be. You know, that's where our vision has to meet the, the story, and and that's particularly that's a good example from the book, and it's it's one I, I really use in class when I'm teaching. Is I was thinking about the audience, and and from say that my internet readership, and that they really like to see neat lighting, and and uh, this will make a good shot for. Uh, my field lighting post that I put on my blog, but at the same time, this was for a magazine story that that shot itself wasn't going to fit. You know, that particular shot of the cowboy just didn't didn't tell the correct story of of who he was. So if somebody just off the street was going to see that photograph and say, man, he looks like a bad man," and you know that, and because he had this the the way he was lit, uh, basically, uh, and the fact that he was wearing a black hat, you know, and 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 all in all honesty, and you know, it's it's written in the book, but it was Moose Peterson that 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 told me, or that asked me, you know, hey, why why is it that he looks like a bad guy whenever he's such a he's probably one of the more positive forces of the story itself? That was educational. You know, we took several variations of of portraits for, of that man for the story, but at the same time, you know, that that really nailed it home that we really have to break away from ourselves alone as a photographer and start thinking about the, you know the the other end as well you know the people that we photograph or the subject matter that we photograph are we are we really saying through our images a what we're feeling and then plus b you know what it is that's really right there in front of us yeah cuz i thought it was such an, an insightful point to make because for a lot of photographers, particularly those of us who are sort of learning technique, mm-hmm. the preoccupation becomes with the technique. Mm-hmm. And there's not much consideration made for what we're trying to express because we'll, we'll look at the image and we'll be preoccupied with the aesthetics of it, mm-hmm. about how well exposed, what the contrast ratio is, whether it's sharp, mm-hmm. and lose sight of the fact that the people more often times that are looking at, at these images aren't photographers. Oh, so yeah. they're not going to be looking at it in terms of that. They're going to be looking at it in terms of what you were trying to communicate, whether in t- intended or not. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being, uh, you know, being interested in the technique and the technical aspects of it. I mean, obviously, you know, we grow as photographers, both as as uh, you know, visual communicators and uh, as uh, you know, uh, tool operators. And uh, so, in order to you know achieve your vision and, and maybe tell a story more impactful, uh, we, we, you know, at some degree want to have a, a fairly good grasp on the, the equipment that we're operating. Of course, that's also where, you know, shooting a lot and, and practice and, and just, uh, and staying open to, to all the possibilities that are afforded you on location or, or in a studio helps, helps you leave the, the, the worrisome nature of being, you know, technically correct all the time in order to tell a stronger story. Yeah. One of the things that I found I found interesting was the idea of trying to discern what sort of themes and ideas you're already drawn to. Mm-hmm. Because I think people would think that to learn to be a visual storyteller involves them having to learn a whole new <laughs> nomenclature and a whole new approach. Mm-hmm. But you suggest that they already sort of intuitively are doing it anyway. And sometimes the best 
way to discern it is to just look at the images you already have on your computer and evaluate them. Talk to us about uh, about that and how people can get into the practice of evaluating their own images in that way with storytelling in mind. Sure. Well, and I think, uh, you know, if we kind of go back to talking about the themes, I mean, you you really do, you have an interest in a particular type of photograph. And I'm not saying that it's a, uh, um, you know, you might be a landscape photographer, but it's not the, that type per se of a pho- photograph you're interested in, but you have other you know types of, of like of of photographs that you're interested in are you interested in those that really have a a dynamic range of color in them and, and the contrast and what does that mean emotionally is it is it a are you interested in in or interested in photographing and drawn to photographing images that really convey a positive feeling one of peace one of happiness um you know not to sound too cliche there but or are, are you are you drawn to sort of the edgier the more contrastier type of images and i think if you go back through your, you know, a catalog of images, especially if you're just starting out, say you've been photographing for a, a year or two, you start going back through those images and you start to, you start to actually, um, you know, characterize it and, and you start to perceive not only your style of photography as, as that style progresses, because I don't necessarily think we just, we just land on a style and we stay there the whole time. You know, you, you kind of go back and you start seeing those those themes, those emotional themes especially, develop in your images. Some of your images don't, you know, may not convey as much conflict as, as others or or as somebody else's photographs. And so that may not you may not be drawn necessarily to that that theme in in particular. Whereas others you might and, and I kinda liken it to, to the you know, types of books and the types of types of music that we that we're into and you know I think as creatives we all have a pretty a fairly uh, varietal interest in different genres of of text and of music to listen to, but you know somebody that's in more into noir type uh, literature, you know the whole mob scene, and and you know those if you had your druthers and and you had all the free time in the world and 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 everything was just uh, you know you had the capacity to do so, you might spend more time photographing that kind of more contrasty, edgier, more uh, mysterious looking imagery. Than say uh, you know a landscape of tulips in, in Holland, and so mm-hmm. I think if we go you know we we go back through our images and we can kind of tell what, what who we are as a photographer by looking at our images, and so you might see these themes start to develop. Are are we really photographing you know uh, images that are more you know that kind of have a more positive feeling, a more uh, uh, relaxing feeling, or are we that type of photographer that really can can do well when we concentrate? On uh, on something the exact opposite, and I, and I don't think anybody would would really see just one theme or or, or one particular style of photograph uh, throughout their whole tenure. You know that that kind of pinhole somebody or uh, you know kind of narrow keep narrow them down. But uh, you know I think we see several that we're more interested in. What did you find in your own work when you started evaluating your own photographs in that way? That what did you discover you were drawn to? in terms of the subject matter and how you chose to photograph. Yeah, uh, subject matter, uh, you know, one, one of my, my mentors is, is, as I mentioned earlier, Wyman Menzer, and uh, you know, he really instilled a, a, uh, <clears throat> a historical sense of conservation uh, in me and, and uh, in terms of natural history. So when I look back, uh, especially on the more natural history-oriented images, the landscapes, the wildlife, I see, I see images that are tied to history and, and tied to, to the progressive change of our lands and, 
and uh, and our and our even our agricultural practices because uh, I live in arguably one of the most active agricultural areas in the in the nation and and, and in the world and and you can't you cannot live in this area and not tell stories about the agriculture that's around you. So, you know, I, I see that type of um, imagery pull, you know, pull away. And, and really what I see is, is a uh, progression. And I'm not talking about progression in the quality of the photographs or the, you know, how, yeah, exactly. The quality of the photographs. I'm, I'm talking about progression in that there is change always happening, but these, these simple, you know, uh, matter of fact principles of life still exist. They just exist in different ways. So, when I look at my natural history stuff, it's it's more along those lines. When I look at my uh, portraiture and 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 more editorial style stuff, where, and and travel photography, I'm 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 really drawn to and this. It's not offensive, but it's a, a salt of the earth type type characters. You know those those that work with their hands. And and again, I think it's I think it's uh, based on that that kind of broad more broad theme of progression and you know kind of how age-old practices are, are still kept alive, maybe just in a different form or through a different media through, throughout, throughout history. And so I think I see a lot of, a lot of history and uh, a lot of uh, conservation and preservation of, of both land and practice. You mentioned that you like photographing people who you know, get their hands dirty, who's, who, who have a physical connection to, to the land. Mm-hmm. And in terms of what do you think that that's telling the the viewer story wise that other image images wouldn't because I think that there's an interconnectedness not just in terms of these people that actually work on the land but a sort of a very emotional connection to it. Tell me about why you think the choice of those characters within the context of the environment that they work and live in is so important for you to be able to tell a certain story that you otherwise might not be able to do. I think I think the the people that I photograph are, are connected to that area, and so you know one one of the reasons that I'm I'm really excited about environmental portraiture is, is because of that very reason. You know, we all <clears throat> I, I, I've never pictured myself in a you know, I teach studio classes at at Texas Tech, and and uh, you know we uh, and and studio lighting and and field lighting courses, and and the my, my and I tell my students I'm not ashamed to say it. You know, my, my the favorite parts of those courses are those when we actually get out into the field and and we can actually put somebody in an environment, and hopefully it's their environment. And I, I don't think that you know we as we as people, non photographers especially, associate individuals that we even know without associating that person with a place. Uh, or, or at least an uh, an environment. It could be a symbolic environment, or it could it could be an actual physical environment. You know, such as a barber shop or, or a uh, a wood a woodworker's table. And uh, you know, so that to me, that's what's important about connecting that person to the place. Now, in terms of the the uh, the folks in the agricultural area that I photograph, and again, I photograph a lot of env- different environmental portraits and agricultural, just being one, but. Uh, the agricultural and environmental portraits, you know, that I, I really feel like I, I want to drive home this this notion that you know each each and every one of us are connected to the land, and it's through people that we're connected to the land. You know, the even the person that li- lives in the deepest part of New York City that has never seen a never seen a farm, never you know never seen a, a milk cow, or or you know don't doesn't really know where their hamburger comes from. Uh, you know, we're all connected back to the land somehow. And so with the environmental portraits of, of agriculturalists, I, I really, 
I, I feel like I want to drive that home a little bit mm. more because that that's their story. And and that's uh, there's a a portrait of my my grandparents in the book, and it's uh, you know a lot of people say when when asked you know what is your favorite portrait, a lot of people say what's I haven't taken that that picture yet. Mm. Uh, and uh, I kind of countered that. I you know my favorite the favorite photo my favorite photograph that I've ever made up until this point really is that photo of my grandparents. And it's really because the story that, that I know and, and that everybody around them knows is in that photograph. And, and, uh, yeah, of course I'm, I'm more familiar with that story, that, that story than somebody else that could, could came, come in and take a picture for, for a magazine. But that story is one of, you know, being connected to the land and providing not only for a family, but for, you know, an extended amount of people around them because, of who they are as agriculturalists. Yeah. One of the important things about learning how to become a better, better, better visual storyteller has very little to do with with the mechanics of the camera, as it has as it has to do with being able to read an image. Because you make mm-hmm. at different points, you talk about the angle uh, at which you shoot something. You know, doing it at a closer to ground level as opposed to eye level, or how much of the sky or the ground that you you choose to include, and that's really much more about understanding how people read an image, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which helps inform what you end up doing with with the cameras. How do you develop that? How do you develop this sort of sensibility of being able to read an image well and effectively, so that when it comes to your time behind behind the camera that you're able to create that successful storytelling image. Sure. Well, I think it, it goes back to what we were talking about a while ago. You know, a, a lot of it is is simply being behind the camera and also having somebody there that will give you an honest critique. Now that's, that's from the photographer's perspective, obviously, but you know, part of it also is, is just you yourself reading images and not only reading the image by yourself, but also having some sort of complimentary material that, that uh, of uh, you know people's perspectives on on, on a particular image or uh, other folks's interpretations of of a particular image. I have a I have a a gentleman named uh, Kent Lowry actually come in and talk to a lot of all actually all of my my principal courses that I teach and and uh, he teaches about Robert Franks's The Americans and, and there's an excerpt in the book about. Uh, Robert Franks and the, and the or Robert Frank and the Americans his book that kind of iconic American book and and he talked about he talks about uh, a literary term called the intentional fallacy and and really basically that just states that people that view uh, this visual content or, or read a, a book you know have a different interpretation than than the producer the photographer the author originally intended and uh, and at the core. Uh, we as you know especially as visual communicators and creative artists, we at the core have to understand that that 's going to happen uh, whenever we we get behind the lens and and uh, start taking you know start making images that once they once they 're out of out of the archive you know if if we 're digital shooters film shooters whatever it may be once they 're out in 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 the world they 're not going to be read the exact same way, and so I think having that understanding also allows you to read and practice reading images. And, and then that, you know, if we were to develop a process that then informs how, how you're going to approach a subject 
whether it's human or non-human, uh, in order to tell that story and to be to be more impactful with the storytelling that you're going to be. I mean, if you wanted to photograph uh, somebody and that's uh, in a position of authority, it might be a good idea to to get a little bit lower than, than them, you know, lower than their eye level, and shoot up a little bit on them. As opposed to shooting down on them, which makes somebody look a little bit more inferior. And of course, those interpretations are are as subjective as any other type. But we we've seen that time and time again in visual history, from from early paintings uh, on the sides of of cave walls to modern art. You know, we see the, these kind of traditional meanings being, I guess, informing our uh, our viewers, if you will, our audiences. Mm-hmm. You work as an editorial photographer, and oftentimes, unlike the image that people have of the National Geographic photographer trouncing all over the world for months <laughs> at a time, <Yeah. laughs> um, the reality is that you are often relegated to a very finite period of time with your subject. Can Can you talk to us about possibly a recent uh, assignment in which you had to create images that conveyed a story, but you had to sort of negotiate all these things that we're, we're talking about in terms of having an idea, in terms of what you want to convey, how you achieved it and, and succeeded in being able to create images that not only that you were pleased with, but fulfill the requirements of the assignment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When we start talking about things like this, it's all, it all comes down to how much time do we actually have and, and uh, you know, editorial photographers are notoriously used to to getting assignments like right off the cuff. You know, we need something in three days, and and you know that's you know that's not uncommon. So I I think what that does is it, it really kind of reinforces the the notion that a we need to be you know fairly flexible and fairly creative whenever we come into into the mix, but also uh, to do as much really really good research uh, right off the bat and. And uh, you know, initially, I, I think back to a uh, a particular story that I actually wrote and photographed on on an artist named James Watkins, and it, his hands are actually the the hands on the cover of the book. When I photographed and, and wrote the story on on him, it was really I was only going to get one a one day shot at at both the interview process and the and the, the photography process. So. I mean, this might not be the greatest example because I I was I was playing the part of of both the writer and the photographer. So I actually had to, I actually got the opportunity to go in and talk to him and just talk to him the first the first day. And then the the second day, and this only took you know this took place in like two and three hour stints, so it wasn't exactly an entire day. So the next time I came in, I was I came in as a photographer and I was able to use the research that I you know had done through the internet and through looking at his art uh, and 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 talking to other people really about his art. Uh, and then I came in after that interview, even more informed as to how I was really going to approach photographing him. And, and so I spent a lot of time really trying to, to, to not necessarily photograph the whole process of, of him creating this, this uh, kind of his signature style of, of pot making. But uh, I was more interested in, in photographing those things that were really important to the process. Not the process itself, but those things, you know, his tools, which were his hands and and uh, and uh, you know, his, the, even the, his feet as they as they adjusted the speed on the on the uh, where he was throwing the pot and and uh, some of those things that really meant probably more to him than they did to the actual creation of the piece and you know that that's that's one example and I think you know any any example that, that you could you could throw out there it has to involve. 
a great deal of just just aggressive consuming of information and research about about your subject uh, before going in. And another thing that really helps is um, is pre visualizing what you know the types of shots that you're going to get. And some people don't you know some photographers have varying opinions on on if pre visualizing is is beneficial or not. You know some some folks say that it really it really does kind of narrow down your the flexibility that you ought to afford yourself while you're on location. But at the same time, pre-visualizing the types of images that you want to get, they can be fairly abstract in the idea. You might just write down on a note, I want to get a, a full length environmental portrait next to, next to some, some art, you know, as a simple example. And when you're on location, now you, at least you have that abstract idea. So you're open enough to, you know, kind of survey the location that you're at in, in order to locate ideal situations where you could photograph a, a nice environmental portrait. So I, I'm a, I'm a fan of pre-visualization. I, I sometimes sit down and, and will draw out images that I would like to get. And uh, if, if they're not there, then they're not there. But at least I have several ideas that have just kind of already started those juices because when I do come, you know, those creative juices, because when I do come in, a lot of times as an editorial photographer, you only have 30 minutes. You only have an hour. Sometimes you only have 15 minutes. And, and I remember shooting a, a uh, cover of a of a city magazine a, a while back, and and I was told that I was going to have 15 minutes to photograph uh, kind of the the stars of this one particular football team, and and uh, so that's all the that's all the university could allow was about 15 minutes with with this group of I think there were I think there were six or seven uh, athletes in in the photograph, and of course the my initial reaction was like we're going to try to fit that many like D1 university football students on a cover, uh, football mm-hmm. players on a cover, you know, because most of them were uh, the offensive line. But so that 15 minutes, you know, I was told that it was going to be photographing that cover about a week before. And, and so we actually spent probably 10 hours worth of prep in order just for that 15 minutes. And a lot of that was just designed because we didn't necessarily have to do a whole lot of research for the for the cover in order to convey the story that we wanted to you know we really wanted to tell through the cover but at, at the same time a lot of it was spent in prep and a lot of that prep was just pre-visualization of what the cover was going to look like and then the rest of it was technical but at least we had those we had two or three nice solid ideas for the cover and and we went in and we we were able to get one and what turned out to be a 15 uh, 15 minute window of opportunity was actually reduced to about seven because uh, oh, wow. one of them who, who is now a, a professional player and I won't name names, but he showed up late and, and it was like, well, we've got seven minutes to shoot this. We, we peeled off about 40 frames and then we were done. Um, and so, you know, that, that was it. But, you know, again, going back to, you know, really what prepares you to t- to come in and tell story under, you know, fairly, fairly uh, rigid parameters in the editorial sense, uh, a lot of it is just front end work that you know for a lot of us it's 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 the it's the type of grunt work that we don't like to do, but it really pays off in the end and you know that yeah. just as well as I do so well, one of the most important parts of storytelling as a whether as a writer or as a photographer, but the most i think the most challenging thing to learn well is is the process of editing oh yeah, deciding what to include what to excise mm-hmm. and 
despite all the challenges that people believe people have in terms of just learning how to tell a story, just the mechanics of the camera, that process of editing it can be really daunting. Oh, yeah. Uh, particularly since you're so dependent on the reaction of someone else to the work in a way that you can't really anticipate. Exactly. So t let's talk about that, about how do you learn to be a, a, a good editor? What, and what's involved in being a, a good editor? Yeah. Well, in the professional sense, you know, being trying to, you know, being able to think like an editor really does help. And, and so part of that, you know, part of what, what gets you there, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, but is just to, to stay involved with the, the industry itself. If you're going to be a magazine photographer and there's certain, you know, there's say there's 10 or 15 photographer or magazines that you'd really love to photograph for, uh, you better go out and, and buy some of those magazines or at least be paying attention to the imagery that comes across <clears throat> through their through their websites. You know, go to go to your local bookstore, whether it be a, a huge Barnes and Noble or a small mom and pop shop and 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 just look at the magazines themselves. You know, sit down and have a coffee and flip through a few pages and and get a feel for the style of, of imagery that they have. Now that style may not necessarily meet up with your own style as a photographer, but but you're now able to go back, you know, or go into a shoot, say, even if you're just photographing stock material and you have a wants list that you're trying to fulfill for a magazine, you're able to go through your images with that magazine in mind and what that editor is, is kind of thinking. And that kind of helps you edit. Now, again, uh, you know, I don't want to take, I, I don't want to take the creative edge away from the photographer in that sense, but you know, you're, from the, in the professional sense, you're also you know, trying to meet that magazine or that publication or whatever outlet that you're working for. You're trying to meet them a little bit in order so you can really publish story, and that's what it's really about. In in terms of you know getting down and editing, I, I, I tell uh, it, it's so it's so neat in, in classes that I teach, and I, I'm using my class as an example because it's, it's really kind of relative right now since we've uh, just started a new semester. We have weekly. Yeah, pretty much weekly critique sessions in which everybody brings in at least one photograph, and, and we sit there and we constructively critique the images. You know, I always give the students first dibs on on the critique and on on an image, and then a lot of times they they do nail, especially you know early on in the semesters, and more especially if they're if they're uh, this is kind of a uh, an introductory course that they're taking you know they start nailing the big things they start saying well you know the this doesn't necessarily follow the rule of thirds but it's getting there you know following the rule of thirds in this case would have maybe helped the the shot um you know little things like that and then i try to come in and and, and really just kind of capitalize on and and try to help them notice other smaller things about images that that you want to pay attention to while editing and you know something is as simple but as powerful as just a, a facial expression just the the most subtle change in facial expression could could mean volumes for the shot in in terms of how how it's conveying some sort of emotion or you know really compelling you know telling compelling story you know by the end of the semester it's 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 very interesting how many students pick up on noticing the little things that actually help make that make that image uh you know just a little bit more powerful than what it would it would have been otherwise and so you know really spending time really combing your photographs you know take that initial edit find the ones you like and this is on a very practical level find the ones you like and then start really picking apart the photographs because undoubtedly you know especially whenever we start out photographing or if we start out on any assignment it doesn't matter what level of photographer you are 
we like to select images that are fairly repetitious sometimes during that first kind of look through that first edit mm-hmm. and then uh you know really pay attention to the ones that are more more repetitive than anything else and and notice the differences in them so what you know what are the small little facial expressions of the third kid in, in the background you know does that help out and so you know there's a an example in in the book of of a a street a street musician he's he's playing in Charleston South Carolina I was just doing a little walking around actually and uh, a little bit of street photography and came across him and and uh he allowed me to take a few images and as I was at a certain angle shooting down the sidewalk that he was sitting on with him in the foreground this couple uh, th- these two people walked by and it was a mother and it was a daughter they started walking by and you know, they got all the way into the frame and it looked great. And then all of a sudden the little girl raised her hands in, in, in a dance to the music that was being played by the street musician. who was playing a, a violin. You know, there's probably, I think six or seven images right there. I didn't want to spend too much time, you know, taking up the, the musician's time while other people were watching, but those two, fo- those two people walked by the mother and the daughter. And when I, when we got to the editing stage, I guarantee you, I selected three of them that were fairly similar but the one with that with that girl that was that had had her hands held high that was the one that made it of course that's an mm-hmm. obvious you know thing to happen you know the arms were raised but it was the way they were raised and 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 so you know images like that that really or an edit like that that can really produce fairly similar looking images you find the one that really says you really start singing home to you yeah and that's an excellent point because i think that one of the weaknesses i see in a lot of portfolios whether they're a printed portfolio or on a website is an inability to be able to, to make that decision mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you end up including similar images that are sort of redundant. And you mm-hmm. can see a, the first image and you think it knocks it out of the park. Then you see the next one and it almost inevitably diminishes the impact of the first. Yeah. And then, so you're like, well, why'd you, why didn't you just throw that other one away? And we as photographers, we have a, especially starting out, we have a hard, hard time getting rid of, of images and uh, you know that was something I learned because I started out shooting film, and, and I was such a huge fan of shooting slide film. And uh, in my office closet, I, I, I guarantee you, there's at least ten thousand slides in there that probably don't need to be sitting in there. Uh, they probably <laughs> need to be in the trash. But we have a hard time getting rid of these things that we produce because they're our babies. But yeah, that's that's it's really key. The edit is important. Uh, I, I, I teach uh, a lot of potential wedding photographers, and and one of the things I tell them is, you know. Before you start, because wedding photographers are notorious, and, and, and I don't mean that in the bad sense, but they're uh, they it's it's uh, it's typical in the industry. Whenever you have like a blog post, whenever you shoot an engagement or something, you post a lot of images under one one heading. You know, say this is Brian and Sarah's engagement, and, and you post on your website for everybody to come see because that's your greatest marketing tool for wedding photographers, besides word of mouth. You post twenty or thirty images. Really pay attention to what you're posting because that's exactly you know you're being critiqued just as much as you're you're happy to put them out there and saying hey this is my product mm. uh, and so yeah the edit the edit is super super important. Well, the last question I always ask is I ask my guests to suggest or recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So, who would that one photographer be, and why? Okay, well, uh, and and uh, I, I mentioned Wyman Menzer earlier, so I'll, I'll let I'll let people pick up on that one, anyways. But um, I was really fortunate that I got to interview quite a few 
really just powerful photographers for this book, and there's the, the interviews are printed in the book. But the one one of them, I was looking forward to all of them, but but uh, one of them that I was really really looking forward to was uh, my interview with Jim Richardson. And uh, do you know Jim? I'm not familiar with him. No, uh, Jim Richardson is a, a he, his tenure with with National Geographic is is you know nearly three decades, if not more, and and uh, he I actually saw him for the for the first time. Uh, I saw a presentation. I was at a uh, an, an agricultural communications conference when I was an undergrad in in Milwaukee, and uh, I saw him make a presentation over his photo essays on the Flint Hills and in. In Kansas, where he he's he lives, and and I just remember those images being so powerful, and they were like a lot of what my you know my my initial mentors' images were saying, Wyman Menzer's images were saying. So, uh, in terms of just recommending a photographer to check out, look at Jim Richardson's stuff. I think he, he and I had a, a wonderful three-hour conversation on on basically the 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 issue of story and and. Um, I mean, his tenure with National Geographic alone, you know, really should impress people. But really, the variety of the story that he gets to tell through the cam, you know, through the photographic medium, and and um, you know, the, his his approach to storytelling is so is is um, I'm not going to say regimented because I don't want to I don't want to again, you know, kind of nail the creative mind down. But he's whenever he gets a, an assignment. He is all in. I mean, he's so immersed mm-hmm. in that information, and he—he's the one that will tell you. You know, research is, you know, maybe the number one thing out there uh, for us photographers to be doing while while we're telling story. So Jim Richardson would definitely be the one uh, that I'd recommend folks uh, key in on. And where can people find out more about you and everything that you're doing? Um, well, I'm, my website's just jaredfoster.com, and uh, that's you know pretty much that's home base. Uh, and it, Jared is spelled with uh, J-E-R-O-D. A lot of people, you know, that's one of the easy names to misspell or, or to, uh, you know, spell fairly different ways. But at um, JaredFoster.com, I keep a blog, uh, a, a fairly regular blog there. It depends on, you know, kind of what I have going on at the time. But I'm trying to post a little bit more regularly. And then uh, I'm on Twitter, you know, fairly, fairly re- actually a lot more regularly than I am on my blog. And, and so, and that's just at, at Jared Foster. And so everything can really be found found out through through those two pieces of information. Right. Well, thank you for joining us, Jared. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. The Candid Frame is supported by donations by people just like you. You can contribute to the show by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com where you'll find other resources about our guests as well as articles and links we think you'll find valuable. The show is edited by Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.